The first part of the reading is Exodus 19, verse 1 to 20. On the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, We will do everything the Lord has has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, I am going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. Then Moses told the Lord what the people had said. And the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Make them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day because on that day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, Be careful that you do not approach the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain is to be put to death. They are to be stoned or shot with arrows. Not a hand is to be laid on them. No person or animal shall be permitted to live. Only when the ram's horn sounds a long blast may they approach the mountain. After Moses had gone down the mountain to the people, he consecrated them and they washed their clothes. Then he said to the people, prepare yourselves for the third day, abstain from sexual relations. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace and the whole mountain trembled violently. (coughs) As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and the voice of God answered him. The Lord descended to the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses went up. The second part of the reading is 1 John 1 verses 5 to 10. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins, and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. As the musicians get their seats, can I say thank you again to the sound 
guys or gurus, whatever we're calling them. Last week we had a smoke offering um, as our sound desk uh, imploded or exploded and there was smoke emitting from over there and it smelled awful. Um, Rob has done a remarkable job with Joel and others of getting a wireless thingy that looks like a rat catcher, but apparently it does something. Joel doesn't play solitaire at the back. He slides something with his mouse thingy and then that goes through the Wi-Fi widget. Wi-Fi is like a Wi-Fi widget, and it does something. So you can see that I care about that a great deal. So thank you, because you can do stuff that I can't. There's a really moving scene. After 154 episodes and about seven years of The West Wing, really moving scene between two of the main characters. If you're not familiar with the remarkable uh, piece of work, I'm a fan, uh, which is The West Wing, and I've seen it more times than I care to admit, there are two characters who kind of intersect with each other at different times throughout the seven seasons. One is CJ. CJ is a tall, articulate, career-minded lady. She is the uh, White House press secretary. And the other is uh, Danny Kincannon, who is a press officer for, I think, the Washington Post. So he's a journalist. And the two of them, through uh, 154 episodes, there's one short, there's 155 in total. I've done my research. But in the 154th episode, there is a scene where the two of them come together. There's been lots of near misses. Danny's been pursuing CJ, but because she's a career woman, it's all about the job, and she wants to serve the president as well as she can for as long as she got. But then the question comes at the end of President Bartlett's term, what does she do next? She's got lots of job offers. She doesn't know which one to take because she's so uh, excellent at her work. There's lots of people that want her to be their employee. So they're talking about the future. And Danny comes to CJ and says this, I want you to do what you want to do. Take the job at the White House. I just want you to talk to me about it. I want us to talk about what it will mean and we'll work it out. I want us to talk like we're going to figure it out together. I want us to talk because I like the sound of your voice. I just want to talk. It's a great scene. Google it. It's absolutely wonderful. The scene goes on because CJ is afraid. She missed that part of, part of her development because it's all about the work for CJ. She doesn't know how to do relationships, and so she's scared. There's not enough time for uh, Danny and CJ to get together, so she's nervous about what's going to come next. It's a really moving scene. She doesn't know how relationships work. She wants to be loved, but she's so afraid of being known. And it's this tension that happens in this scene. And that, in some ways, reflects what is going on in 1 John. We started the journey last week. 1 John is a, a wonderful little epistle. It looks so easy, but it's very, very deep. And it's about knowing God. Because all of us, we're a bit like CJ. We want to be loved, but we're afraid of being known. That's uh, our greatest fear, says Tim Keller. But if you flip that round, what we long for is to be truly known and deeply loved. That's what we long for. And we've seen from verses 1 to 4 of 1 John, we've seen that John the Apostle has heard and seen and touched the resurrected Jesus. So this is a historical book. He's setting out his stall, as it were, in the first four verses of chapter 1. And at the end of those four sentences in verse 3, he says, this is the cash value of me seeing and hearing and touching the resurrected King Jesus. You can know God. You can not just know about him, you can enjoy him. You can know deep, 
self-saturated, heartbeat-wrenching joy. Because you get to know not just Jesus. Do you notice from verse 3? You can have fellowship, not just knowledge. You can have an intimate relationship with the Godhead. You can know Jesus Christ and you can know the Father in the empowerment of the Spirit. This is the gospel message. You can know and be known. You can enjoy love and be loved. But not by a press secretary or a journalist, but by the maker of the universe. Because of the historical reality of the resurrection. There's life-giving joy in the gospel. And that's just the first four verses. And then you get to verse 5, because nothing compares to this. this. This subterranean resource of joy, whether you're in the, the peaks of an experience with, uh, with King Jesus, or whether in the depths of despair and you think the heavens are shut. Nothing compares to this, says John. And in verse 5, he says, this is so great, you need to know how to get it. And in verses 5 through to verse 10, you have a, a kind of a nugget summary of the whole of the gospel. Three things you need to see that if you want to enjoy this relationship, if you want to be known by God, and if you want to know and love him, these are three things you need to understand. You need to grasp that God is light. It says that in verse 5, God is light. You need to know that you have sin in your life, as do I. But you need to know the wonderful truth that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. If you don't know these three things, that God is light, that you have sin, and that the blood of Jesus cleanses you from all sin, you will never know this relationship with Jesus. You'll, you'll never be a Christian unless you have these three things down. So let's look at them. Number one, God is light. God is light. It's where the message begins, verse 5. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. Now you think, what's remarkable about this? Of course, John is saying here, the first thing you need to understand, you need to get, is that God is light. If you want to know this, this deep joy of verse 4, if you want to know this deep joy, if you want to know this relationship between the Father and the Son, Jesus Christ, you need to understand who God is. And you need to understand that he's light. And you're thinking, oh, hang on, what does that mean? Well, God is light. That's, a, that's a, an emblem, that's a symbol of his holiness, of his perfection, of his otherness, of his differentness. And in him there's no darkness at all. And you say, well, hang on, I thought you were going to tell me how to get joy. And now you're telling me about holiness and light. Well, John is saying to us, if you don't know who God is, how can you enjoy a relationship with him? If you don't know who he is as he's revealed himself to be, how will you know who he is? You need to get to know who God is. And so he begins at the very beginning, verse 5. God is light, and in him there's no darkness at all. If you don't understand that God is holy, if you don't know that he is perfect, you can understand that he's merciful, but you have not grasped his holiness, you won't know who Jesus Christ is. You won't know who God is. He is morally pure. There's not one iota of imperfection in God. He's absolutely just and perfect. If you don't understand and grasp that, then his love will not bring you joy. You need to understand his character. About 200 years ago, there was a German philosopher called Heinrich Heine. Great German name, couldn't be from any other country. As he was dying, he'd lived a really horribly sinful, sin-stained life, a very debauched and indulgent lifestyle. Someone says to him, aren't you afraid to meet God after the life you've lived? And Heinrich said, no, God will forgive me. That's his job. God will forgive me. 
That's his job. It's a great sentence for understanding how many of our friends, and perhaps some of you, think that God should deal with us. If it's not how you think, it will be how some of your friends think. God, well, he's the great cosmic Father Christmas, and so when we get to the end of our lives, he should forgive me because that's his job. He should be merciful because that's his job. But there's a great irony here, three things. Here's the irony. If God is not light, as John says he is, then he cannot be love. It's not God's job to accept us. But if it is God's job to forgive, and he then just shrugs his shoulders at everything, then that's no mercy at all. If God shows mercy on absolutely everybody, and he is light, that's not mercy. Because light shines from God's personality and personhood. Therefore, holiness is on display. And there is an ultimate standard that we need to accrue to and achieve to. If it's his job to forgive and he shrugs his shoulders at everything in our lives, then it's not mercy, because justice requires uh, a standard. If God is only mercy, then he's not mercy at all. He is light, is where John begins. Now, what is holiness? I want you to think about a bicycle. My friend came off his bicycle this week, but think about the hub of a bicycle. All the spokes emanate from the hub. Without the hub, the wheel has no strength. The wheel has no unity and harmony, so we say. Imagine the holiness of God as the hub and shapes every part of his attributes and character. God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Everything that happens, to quote uh, Sting, every move that he makes, every decision that he takes, everything he says and does, every uh, control that he has emanates his perfect holiness. It's the hub of his character. Every just decision that he makes is shaped by his holiness. He is beautiful because he is holy. Every decision he takes in superintending the whole universe is perfect because he is holy at his core. Every decision he makes is good. Every decision he makes is right and just and perfect. Why? Because he is a God of holiness in his heart. It's the wrong word. But in his very centre, holiness defines the character of God. But flip that round and think about you and me. What's my centre? What's your centre? What controls you and emanates through all the decisions that you make in your life? If I'm honest, it's often comfort. It's often what pleases me. It's often what is, happens for my advantage, for my good. That's what's happening in my spirit and my heart most of the time. I will go here, I will do this, I won't do that, I'll give my attention and affection to that, if it achieves my goal, and if it's for my good. But think what happens when a person like you or me comes close to a God who is light, and in whom there's no darkness at all. What happens then? Well, in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah is a prophet in the Old Testament, he came close to a God and he sensed his holiness, and he sees his light, and what does Isaiah say? Woe is me. I'm coming apart and falling apart because I'm so unlike you in your purity. What does Job say when he comes near to the holy God? I see you with my eyes and I despise myself in dust and ashes. I see who you are and I'm nothing compared to you. What about Peter as he rubs shoulders with Jesus? Depart from me, O Lord, for I'm a sinful man. This is what happens when you get close to a God who is light and in whom there's no darkness at all. It's a traumatic experience 
when you come close to the God of the Bible. When you come close to the true God, it's not something you do glibly or casually. It's something you do with reverence and awe because God is light and in him there's no darkness at all. It's the first point, but by consequence of that, John says, here's the second point. You and I have sin. We have a sin problem. God is light and you and I have a sin problem. Look at verse 6. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Verse 8, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. Verse 10, if we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar. There's three things there. Verse 6, we walk in darkness. Verse 8, we have sin. Verse 10, we do sin. Sin is not just a transgression. It's not here's the right standard and we do wrong. It's bigger than that. It's more encompassing than that. It's it's an entire outlook on the world. We look out in the world and our eyes are, are affected by this. Our motivations are shaped by this. It's a mindset as well as an outlook. It's not just a, a passing the test and failing occasionally. It's in every fibre and aspect of our decision-making process and in our being. And John is saying this, I think, to really have joy, you need to know who God is. Verse 5. He is a God of perfection, of holiness, of otherness, of separateness, of light. But then you need to understand who you are in light of his moral perfection. We have a sin problem. We are a rebel. But if you know this, you can know joy. And that sounds really kind of counterintuitive. Where's the joy going to come, John? But I think John wants to test if we are actually a real Christian. And here's the test. You can test this morning if you are a genuine Christian or not by this thermometer test. How you experience sin and failure. How you deal with sin and failure, those two things. How you deal with guilt and pride. How you deal with shame and despair. How you deal with those things will show whether you're a moralist or whether you're a Christian whether you're a moralist or whether you're a Christian. A moralist is someone who gets their spiritual confidence, their spiritual acumen from their standing with God. It's about performance. So a moralist would say, this is what I've done, this is what I've achieved, this is what I've given, this is the things that I've done. And then that impression of their goodness and their performance is projected onto a God who loves people to perform. It's based on your performance. It's based on your love and understanding. It's based on you and what you've done. That's a moralist. So when they have to deal with sin and failure, when they understand a mistake they've made in their life, when they get a glimpse of the glory of God, they want to run a mile away from him because they think that they've failed. They think that God won't want them to be close to them because their confidence is based on their performance, but a Christian... A Christian who grasps and understands the gospel that it's by grace and grace alone, they understand that their performance is not what counts. It's Christ's performance. They're accepted because of him. The only reason a Christian says, the only reason God accepts me is because what Jesus has done for me, not what I've achieved. It's completely different motivational structure. But here's the problem. A moralist and a Christian, they look the same. So how do you know the difference? How do you know the difference? Well, here's John. What does he say? Verse 9. It comes down to how you deal with your sin and failure. 
It comes down to deal with confessing your sin. For a moralist, someone who understands that they've been sinful, someone that understands that they've been a rebel, someone who understands they've made mistakes before God, when they see that, they're devastated. They're not standing tall, they're feeling small. They want to run away from God. They want to flee from him. They think, how could God possibly love me? After all I've done, I've failed. I've lost some marks. I won't pass. I will fail. But a Christian, when the Spirit of God shows something new of their own sinful nature, they are sad. That's appropriate and right. But they run to God because they see something afresh of the mercy and grace of God. And they want to confess their sin with tears, but with joy, but because they understand that the blood of Jesus covers all our sin. They don't run away from God. They run to him for fresh grace and fresh understanding of the grace of God. They can run to the cross, not away from it. Friends, who are you most like this morning? The week you've had, the decisions you've made, the beds you've slept in, the things you've watched. When you come to God, the words you've spoken, are you more like the moralist who think, oh, I've had a terrible week, God will never love me? Or are you someone that's embraced Jesus and understands the gospel? I can come to God through no merit of my own, but because of Jesus. It's not about what you've done, it's about what Jesus has done. I know you've heard it before, but we need the penny to drop afresh. We need to understand that we are rebels and we want to run away from God, but we need to run to him every single day for grace. The cross is precious to the Christians because it's not until you see the width and depth and height and you measure the love of Jesus, the scene of the cross, so clearly. Well, put it this way. It's not until you see the size of the debt that you owe. It's not until you understand the holiness of God that you see your own sin and you know the size of the payment that's been paid. It's not until you see the size of the problem that you see the size of the solution that's required. It's grace from beginning to end. So who are you most like? Are you more like that moral person in your understanding of what God is like? You come to him with Jesus, but with some of your own effort as well. Or are you someone that grasps the gospel afresh and sees it's all about Jesus and his grace? That's what verse 7 is alluding to. John is saying, the blood of Jesus makes it possible for people like us to come into the light and the radiance and the purity of a holy God. That's the only way it's possible. You can't know God's light until you know his love. And you can't know his love until you know his light. You can't know God's light unless you know Jesus' blood. It's so important to grasp. And that's what John goes on to. Thirdly, finally, Jesus' blood cleanses us from all sin. Beginning in verse 7, John begins to talk about the blood of Jesus a lot. And it tells us that if we take the blood of Jesus and use it, I say that very respectfully, if we use it in three ways, there are two good ways and a negative way we can use the blood of Jesus. Two positives, one negative. Here's the first one, there are three. For every Christian, correctly understood, the blood of Jesus, the cross of Christ, is the primary incentive for obedience. The primary incentive for obedience. I was reading a story to our children this week. It's a story from the American Civil War. I thought I'd share it with you. A man from the north of the American Civil War goes to a, a slave auction and buys for himself a black slave girl. And they meet for the first time. He's paid the money. She comes to meet him for the first time. And she, uh, 
Here's these wonderful words from her new owner, you're free. What? What do you mean I'm free? You mean I can do whatever I want to do? I've been a slave all my life. Yeah, you're free. You mean I can say whatever I want to say? Yes, you're free. You mean I can go to wherever I want to go? Yeah, you're free. And then she looked at him, looked him in the eyes and said, then I want to go with you. I want to go with you. And we were thinking about, and I was trying to rub this into the kids, why would the slave girl want to go with her new owner when she's been under slavery all her life? And they said some great things because perhaps she saw the kindness in his eyes, perhaps she appreciated and loved him for the freedom that he bought, so she wanted to go with him. Friends, the blood of Jesus Christ is the motivation for us to be obedient, not because we have to, but we see at the cross and we see in the blood of Jesus Christ. And we remember every time we celebrate the Lord's death until he comes, the cost of our salvation. It's the incentive for obedience. We don't have to obey out of a need, but we want to obey because Jesus is precious to us and his blood is precious to us. This puny little cup of grape juice that we celebrate once a month, it's so inconsequential. No, it's not. It's so precious because the blood of Jesus covers us from all sins. John is saying this, no matter what your disease is, this blood of Jesus Christ that was shed on the cross for you 2,000 years ago, whatever your disease, whatever your addiction, this is the medicine you need. And it covers all, capital A, word art for you old-fashioned word users, word art flashing. This is a huge billboard across the universe. The blood of Jesus covers all sins. There's not one that it cannot cover. It melts you. It should do. How can you keep on sinning, friend? How can you keep enjoying a habitual sin if the cross of Jesus Christ is precious to you? How can you keep trampling on his blood? How can you keep, with your actions, as it were, putting your hands around his neck? We don't think of the cross like that, but perhaps if we did, perhaps the cross and the blood of Jesus would be even more a motivation for obedience so that we wouldn't crucify Jesus again by our actions. Here's the second one. Here's another positive. At the same time, when we sin, not only is the cross obedience uh, the, the motivation for obedience, but the cross and the blood of Jesus, if you have sinned, verse 9 tells us, if you confess our sins. So you can use it as a motivational tool, but at the same time you can remember the wonderful truth that when you sin, not if, the blood of Jesus covers all sins. Look at verse 9. If you confess your sins. We thought about this at Easter. What is it that holds the creator of the universe to the cross? It's not the nails. It's not the guards. It's not fear. It's love. It must only be the love of Jesus for the glory of his Father and for our great and eternal good that kept Jesus on the cross. It must have been love. He wasn't stuck there by glue. The nails weren't insufficient to hold him there, as it were. It was love that kept Jesus on the cross. Friends, when you're tempted to doubt, when your sinometer increases in a really bad week, whatever that makes or means, do you really think that lessens the power of the blood of Jesus? As verse 9, you confess your sins as you go to him again with confessional uh, spirit and repentant heart. Do you really think that your big sin week rather than a small sin week where you've been good rather than bad, do you really think that's going to lessen the power of the blood of Jesus? 
He had the, the wrath of God poured out upon him. He had the depths of hell which he descended into, all for our sake. Do you really think our bad week of sin is going to diminish the power of Jesus' love? Do you think it's going to wear it out in some way? We need to see again that the cross of Jesus motivates us for obedience. But when we sin, we need to see again that the blood of Jesus, when we confess our sins, covers all sins. This is not a get-out-of-jail-free card, but it's a wonderful promise from a faithful God. If you ever think, oh, I've done it again, how in the world could God receive me? You do not understand the depth that Jesus loves you. John says, the blood of Jesus gets you to walk in the light. Because when you're about to be tempted, you think again of the depth and height and width and span of Jesus' love. It keeps you on the straight and narrow. But when you fall, the blood of Jesus also makes you look at the cross and you can say with a heart full of faith and assurance, I've been restored through faith in Jesus. It's God's provision. He's faithful, he's just, and it's his justice on display in saying this is where your sins are forgiven and only here. Priests can't do it. Works can't do it, only Jesus can. So there are two positives, but let me end with a negative. Not only is it a motivation, it's not just a power with confession for your sins to be wiped away. Here's a negative. The only thing that can destroy you if you're not a Christian here this morning, is that when you sin, you do not go to the blood. That's the only thing that can destroy you. If you're not a Christian here this morning, is that when you sin, you don't go to the blood. You don't go to God's means for forgiveness, so you carry it upon yourself. There was a poet called George Herbert, and he wrote a four-line poem that's so helpful. He says, though I fail, I weep. Though I halt in pace, yet I creep to the throne of grace. To the throne of grace. I fail, I'm weeping, I'm about to confess. But I halt and I go slowly, but even in my slowness and sorrow, I'm going to creep to the throne of grace. The only way you can fail to weep, the only way you can fail to repent, the only way you can fail to receive forgiveness, if you think your sins are too great, and you're tempted to stay where you are in your own strength. But God in Jesus has made a way for your sins to be forgiven, to be paid for, not in part, but in full. Friends, don't hold on to your sins. Don't think that you are morally good enough to please God's holy, high standard. I am liked in me is no darkness at all. will never be good enough. But Jesus is. You might say, oh, you don't know what I'm facing. You don't know the temptations that I succumb to. You don't know the person that's treated me so badly that I need to hold on to my hatred. You don't know what I'm struggling with. I have to be dishonest just to make ends meet. No, I don't know, but Jesus does. But friends, don't hold on to your sin. It's the most dangerous, eternally dangerous thing you can do of refusing to go into the provision that God has made on the cross of Christ. Only Jesus' blood can forgive us of our sins. But Jesus' blood is so powerful that you can be free. And you can be free even this morning, free, absolutely free entirely. You will still wrestle with sin until Jesus calls you home or until he returns. But the blood of Jesus is so powerful, it can help you to walk in the light. And when you know that, you will not just be known, but you'll be loved. Let's pray. Father, thank you for that old hymn, What Can Wash Away My Sin? 
nothing but the blood of Jesus. Father, it is so um, strange in a world that does measure performance, that there's just so many ways to look down on other people. So we speak unkindly, we put on a facade, we lie, we cheat, we steal. You know us better than we know ourselves. But regardless of the week and our own performance that we've had morally, help us to see afresh, I pray, that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. And uh, help us not to hold on to our performance, but to cling to Jesus, because only he is worthy. Help us in our great weakness, we pray, to walk more in the light in the week to come than in the darkness, I ask. Amen.